Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors, and you, our listeners, ask the questions. I'm Eliza Rosenberry, and the thematic fun fact I'm sharing this week is that I love bread. I just love it. (laughs) (laughs) This is Tavia Kowalchuk, and to be honest, I'm a bit indifferent to bread. That's crazy. It's like a fine vehicle for sandwiches. (laughs) Gotta get the meat in there somehow, Mm. or, you know, I like it to stop up pasta sauce. (laughs) Although, I have to admit, I do really love my dad's Ukrainian Easter bread that he makes from scratch. It is so good, and he only makes it once a year, so it's really special. What's in it? A lot of eggs, and... And actually quite a bit of sugar. It's like a sweeter bread. Ooh. It's so good. And he, like, makes it shiny on top somehow. It's amazing. I'm coming over for Easter. Oh, my God. Well, I'll bring you some in. I freeze it. Oh. Yeah, I freeze slices, so I'll bring you some in. Yes. Yeah, so good. Awesome. On today's show, on the eve of D-Day, a young woman from a small coastal village in Normandy creates an underground network to help and feed the people around her. Emma and the other villagers fight the occupying German army through small but incredibly brave daily acts of defiance in the historical novel, The Baker's Secret. And later in the show, we'll be joined by award-winning and critically acclaimed author Stephen P. Kiernan. But first, we have a fun segment. As you may know, March is Women's History Month. Tavia and I are really excited to share our top reads for Women's History Month. And so here's one of my all-time favorites. It's a nonfiction book. It's called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot. The real-life Henrietta Lacks was an African-American woman who lived during the first half of the 20th century, and basically her cancer cells were taken and used by medical researchers for many, many decades, and they were super important, Um, but they were taken and used without her consent and after her death without the consent of her family members. And those cells are called HeLa cells, and they remain super important to cancer research today. And I'm not a scientist or, you know, I have no familiarity with like medical research or anything. And this was a super accessible book and it was super important um, to understanding issues about race and medicine and bioethics. And the book was first published about 10 years ago. So a lot of people have probably already heard of it or even read it. Um, But it was recently adapted into a an Emmy Award nominated movie on HBO, which I haven't watched yet. But that's one of my recs. So I have this book on my shelf. And my dad read it. He's like, you have to read this book, Tavia. And I said, I know, I know, I want to read it. So I'll get to it one day. But My dad also read this book, and we talked about it, too. Oh, that's so awesome. Parental book club. I know. It's perfect. (laughs) Get the dads on the show. (laughs) So I want to recommend The Long Loneliness by Dorothy Day. It's her autobiography, and it tells the story of how she founded The Catholic Worker and became one of our nation's most important actors for social justice. Before she became the social justice activist, though, she lived this really bohemian lifestyle in New York City. She was an anarchist, and then she converted to Catholicism. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes, the traditional path, (laughs) right? And so she founded this communal house where people lived by these social justice tenants, and then she started a newspaper with the same name, The Catholic Worker, and it focused on all these social justice issues. Many of the issues are the same. Like, they're still, the organization is still dealing with the same issues today. But I love that she was a political radical, that she was so influential and pioneering during her time in the in the early and mid-1900s when women were rarely given a chance yeah. to make such an impact. She really trailblazed. And I need to buy another copy of the book because I left mine in the pocket of an airplane seat. <laughs> You'll never get it back. I'll never get it back. Not that one copy. I have to get another one. This sounds really good. I've never heard of it before. She's like a very cool lady. Yeah. Very cool. She sounds it. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's a good one. 
Um, I also have two books on my to-read shelf that I want to quickly recommend for Women's History Month. One is called Ninth Street Women by Mary Gabriel, and it's about the women artists who revolutionized modern art. Um, and I think it's mostly set in New York. And then the other book is called is The Source of Self-Regard, which is a collection of essays and speeches and other writing by the late, great Toni Morrison. Oh, my God. Toni Morrison. I mean, such a queen. But this book by Mary Gabriel sounds amazing. Yeah. It's really big, though. It's like 800 pages, I think. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So it's pretty intimidating. You've read long books before, Eliza. I'll get, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. <laughs> but I think it's a good one, especially if you're interested in in art history, because um, so many women artists are left out of most of the art history textbooks. It's true. It's true. They're just starting to get a little bit more recognition. Yeah. I am a total Italophile, and Marcella Hazan is one of my personal heroes. I listened to the audiobook of her memoir, Amar Cord, which means I remember in Italian, over many nights of cooking dinners, and it is one of the coolest experiences I've ever had with a book. Like, listening to a book about someone who is a cook mm-hmm. and who built her life's work on co- cooking and disseminating Italian food while you're cooking mm-hmm. is just so cool. So... Marcella, for those of you who don't know, is considered the Julia Child of Italian cooking. And her memoir takes us through her childhood in Italy, which spans World War II and the post-war period, all the way through her life when she moves to the United States. She writes cookbooks and she becomes a best-selling author. And she also founded and ran this famous cooking school in Italy. Um, I actually met Marcella once really? before she died. Yep. And I spoke to her in Italian and she was so gracious to me. I'm sure Aww. I made plenty of mistakes, but she was just like, grazie, grazie. <laughs> Where did lovely. you meet her? So I got invited to a bookseller dinner. It was so cool. I was so honored awesome. to be invited. I don't know how I made it onto the guest list. I was just like, I'm just going to be quiet and eat my food. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And we want to know what you are reading this Women's History Month also, whether it's nonfiction, fiction, poetry, essays, uh, cookbooks. Tag us on Instagram or post in the Book Club Girls Facebook group to share your recommendations with us. And now we present to you The Baker's Secret Abridged. Emma is a skilled baker who has lived her whole life in the small Normandy village of Verger. But her talent doesn't go unnoticed by the occupying German army, who quickly put her to work making bread for the troops. But 22-year-old Emma doesn't just bake the bread. She adds ground-up straw to her rationed ingredients and bakes extra loaves to share with her neighbors, even as the German captain Talheim follows Emma every day, taking up residence in her home to ensure her cooperation. Right under his nose, Emma builds an underground network of bartered items throughout the small village that provides her neighbors with sustenance and hope during the occupation. I have to say, I first of all, I loved this book. I enjoyed this read so much. But Emmanuel, this woman, she just stood out for me. She's unlike any character that I've read recently. She was a pessimist who committed great acts of optimism and love. So she believed that the troops were never going to come and save them, that they were just going to be left there to starve. But nevertheless, she persisted to keep her neighbors and her family alive and she and she did all kinds of sly little tricks and deceptions to get food and you know supplies to her neighbors i really i just i really admired her yeah she's so clever and i love how you put it that she's a pessimist who did all of these acts of optimism that's such a great way to encapsulate it i i really well thank you <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome 
I really loved the whole cast of characters in this book. All of like the little quirks, everybody has their role, everybody has their, you know, the things that people like about them and the things people don't like about them, and they all sort of fit together. I love the sort of small town, small village vibe. It sort of reminded me of the village at the beginning of Beauty and the Beast. Like, everybody has their role, and, and it's a small town. Um, but really, I think Stephen Kiernan does a great job of capturing the small moments with these characters. Yeah, but it's like there's the fisherman, there's the baker, there's the farmer, there's the town beauty, there's the town clerk who everybody thinks is a little bit of a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I agree. He really has cobbled together a really great cast. And, you know... I have to admit, true confession, I am I am a big fan of Stevens. I've read every one of his novels. They are all special, but this one, to me, is extra special. There's something about the tone and the voice of this novel that really is set apart from his other work. It, the writing has this innocence about it, even though the, he details these horrible war crimes. It felt as if I was reading a fable or a fairy tale. Yeah, that's. I totally understand what you mean. I wonder if, I think, I, I could be wrong, but I think I remember that, that he doesn't actually refer to a specific country or nationality or, or spe- like, he doesn't say the German soldier. He says the occupying soldier. And he doesn't say, like, we spoke in French. He says we spoke in our langu- language and they spoke in their language. So, like, it sort of has this quality and makes it seem like it could be taking place anywhere, even though obviously we know that it's World War II and it's Normandy, but it could sort of be happening anywhere. Yeah, I think that was part of the quality. Yeah, I think that's it, Eliza. I really loved the relationship between Emma and her grandmother. So at the start of the book, Emma is living with her father and her grandmother, and then quite quickly her father is captured by the German soldiers. And so it's just Emma and her elderly grandmother, and her grandmother is sort of descending into this dementia. She's getting older. She doesn't really remember where she is all the time. And Emma really has to take care of her. And I think her, she sort of assumes this responsibility of caring for her grandmother in this way that sort of allows her to take on the care that she gives to all of her neighbors. Um, And I sort of loved watching that happen and unfold throughout the novel. It's amazing, you know, as you're talking about this, that when you say that Emma takes on the care of her grandmother and her neighbors, she literally creates this shoulder harness that she wears. She carries on her back this cart that brings all of the food and supplies to her neighbors. So it's it's very literal and physical that she's carrying their care yeah, on her she back. she physically takes it on. Yeah. Yeah. This was my first book that I've ever read by Stephen Kiernan. I'm not a, I haven't, I'm not yet a super fan like you, <laughs> but I loved it. And I know he has a new book coming out this year. So I really want to talk to him about that too. I know. I, I can't wait to talk to him about this book, about the new book. It's going to be so great to chat with him. Yeah. Quick reminder, we love hearing from you. Please join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can talk with other book lovers and pose your own questions to authors who appear on our show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash The Book Club Girls. And stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample from the Baker Secret audiobook. Today on the show, we're joined by Stephen P. Kiernan, whose book, The Baker's Secret, is out now. Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, Stephen. We are so glad you're here. Me too. Glad to be here. So 
fans of The Baker Secret have sent us a whole bunch of questions for you. These are some of the, I think we got the most amount of questions ever for this book. Yeah, I think so too. It was really cool. So to kick things off, Christina from the Book Club Girl Facebook page wants to know, where did the idea for the novel come from originally? And have you always enjoyed historical fiction? So it's like a two-parter. Two-parter. So the novel idea came out of the blue. I was in the place, the, the YMCA in Burlington, Vermont, where I exercise. And the TV was turned up loud for the guys that were watching the news while I was taking a shower and getting changed. And there were speeches going on that were about the, geez, I guess at that point it was the 65th anniversary of D-Day. And there were speeches from the President of the United States and a speech from the Prime Minister of Great Britain. And then the speech from the President of France. And as he was walking up to the podium, the television station cut away to a train derailment in Arkansas or someplace. And I found myself standing there like I hadn't even really been listening. And I thought, I wonder what the president of France would have to say about that. And so I forgot all about it. And a couple of weeks later, I was just kind of Googling around online. And, um, and I went to search for the speech. And what came up instead, I don't remember what I typed, but what came up instead was a tally of how many people died on D-Day. And it was 5,200 5, Americans, right? That's, that's just an unbelievable amount of sacrifice. Think of it, 400 an hour during the, the time of the invasion and, you know, thousands of Britons and Canadians and so on. Uh, 5,200 Americans and then 11,800 French men and women. And I thought, wow, there is a huge untold story here. And no one's really talked about D-Day from the French perspective. There have been all these great books and movies about the battle, but not about what it was like to be a French man and a French woman living, living in those occupied times and suddenly here are 155,000 troops bent on your liberation. Oh, the, my interest in historical fiction was accidental. That I wasn't planning on writing a historical novel, but that was such a compelling thing to me as I did the research that I really wanted very much to tell that story. And you did so beautifully. I love the, the way that you portray this French town. Thank you. You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast, where our guest this week is Stephen P. Kiernan, whose book, The Baker's Secret, is out now. You can read more about Stephen's book at bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, we ask Stephen about his literary white whale. Stick around. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by... The Operator by Gretchen Berg. The Operator tells the story of a small-town telephone operator in the 1950s whose discovery of a secret about her own family upends her life and those around her. It's available now wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. So the dialogue in this book is so fantastic. And so Catherine asked if you write better dialogue when you're alone or if you're inspired by conversations that you overhear in public? Oh, that's an easy one because I spent 20 years working in newspapers and did all my writing in newsrooms, which are really, really noisy places. People are shouting and the phones are ringing and the printers are going and the TV's on and the radio and the scanner. And so I considered an enormous luxury that now I write in complete silence. And so everything that comes out, dialogue, all of it, it's it's from the quiet place where I work in my home in Vermont. <laughs> You're like, that's it. I'm done with the newsroom. I've got my office. Exactly I'm right. look out the window. You know, the most I hear is like the purring of my cat because it's winter and she likes to curl up in my lap because I'm a stationary warm object. <laughs> That sounds delightful. It's pretty good. Pretty good. I would like to work that yeah, way too. At bad. home with a cat. 
That sounds very productive. Stephen, one of your readers on Facebook, Patty, says that she's a detail-oriented person. And so she wanted to know if you actually practiced baking bread specifically with the ground-up straw that Emma uses in The Baker's Secret. And if so, does it work in real life? Okay, so this is a great question because one of the fun things about writing a novel, uh, of course, is the stuff that you learn, whether you intend to or not. And I've done enough writing now where I look forward to the things I'm going to learn. And I thought, as I was really embarked on The Baker's Secret in a serious way, by the end of this book, I'm going to know how to cook, a, uh, bake a killer baguette. And I talked to a bunch of different <laughs> bakers, and I really set myself to it. And here's what I, I'm here to tell you, that, that baking a baguette is actually impossible. It can't be done. And every every baguette you've ever had was a miracle. I can make I can make a baseball bat of a flour. You know, I can make I can turn dough into like a little short hockey stick, but I am not able to make a baguette. And if I couldn't make a regular one, I was not gonna get fancy and try and put ground up straw in there. So I don't know if it would be edible, but I think it would be less tasty than the miracles of baguettes that we've had in our lives. How did you come up with the idea then of her putting the straw in it? Oh, boy, how do I come up with ideas like that? You know, I needed something to expand it that would be very humble and that maybe she'd be able to get away with and that would call on all of her skill as a baker, that that her particular genius would be useful in causing a deception. And so I, I didn't think about 50 different things. The straw came to me pretty early on, and um, and then I just stayed with it, and I liked how pedestrian a thing it was. It was straw. It was nothing fancy at all except that it made so much possible in her network of doing good. So that's so I love that answer because in my mind, I was thinking, oh, when Stephen was writing this novel, he had read some article about a baker who did this during the war, or this is what people did during the war to stretch their supplies. And But you invented it out of the blue. I did. There are some amazing things that people did do to survive, including eating the glue that held pa- plaster to the lathing in their houses, or that held wallpaper on the eight glue. I mean, the desperation was unbelievable. So compare with when I was doing the research and found stuff like that, Putting putting a little a couple of handfuls of straw in in the the dough for six baguettes or a dozen baguettes that that seemed like not that great a leap. And I just made it up. Oh, well, it 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 works perfectly. Thank yes. You. <laughs> Stephen, one of our listeners called in with a question for you. Hi, my name is Ryan, and I have a question for Stephen. My question is: apart from Emmanuel, who is your favorite character, and why? Thank you so much. Oh, that's it's so hard because I really love the characters in this book very much. And some of them I miss. I miss Emma and her determination and her kindness. I miss Monkey Boy and his whimsy. I miss all of the idealism and different kinds of all these people. But my favorite character is Apollo as a horse and his freedom and where he comes and goes. And and my second favorite would be Pirate, the rooster. I really like the animals in this book and their cameo capacity. I'd never really had animals as characters before. And, you know, Pirate to me is, is so much about this, the indomitable spirit of the French people and how feisty he is, and I, and I love him. Part of the hardest part of this book, finishing it, was was letting go of those characters. In fact, when they were doing the paperback edition, they asked me to do a Q&A at the end, um, you know, for, for readers of the paperback. And I added Emma to the Q&A and had her answer some of the questions, too, just so I could have her voice and presence back with me a year after the book came out. 
I read that Q&A and I absolutely loved it. And I have to tell you a funny story. Jordan, our producer, is probably laughing right now because she read that Q&A and thought that Emma was a real person. You know, isn't that what that just tells you about how vivid she was? In fact, a bunch of people have written to me and said, how could she have done that Q&A with you? She'd have to be 100 years old. And it's like, no, no, no. She was made up. She was a character in a novel. (laughs) Um, You wrote her so, so convincingly. You know, it was. Just, well, I, just I love her. that you mentioned the horse, Stephen, because I was really worried about the horse. Yeah, me too. I was like, oh my god, he he just let the horse go free. How is the horse going to get food? I was really worried, and I'm glad that the horse was okay. Yes, he survives. Survives the war. Stephen, I was not expecting you to name the horse or the rooster as your favorite characters. That's such, a, <laughs> such a great answer. <laughs> you never know who you're going to fall in love with. A lot of our Facebook group members had questions about the research that you did. Shari asked if you spent any time in France, and a few other readers asked whether you interviewed real people who were at D-Day or who did anything similar to what Emma does for her community. Can you tell us a bit about your research and any interviews you may have done? Sure. Um, I think the first thing is to say is, is, of course, I went to France because, you know, I am willing to suffer from my art. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I had to go to France and see Normandy. And one of the reasons that was really valuable is that the, the D-Day invasion and its aftermath happened with such severity and speed that the French people, to memorialize it all, left it all there. So when you go to Normandy, you don't just see the cemeteries, which are very moving places. You also see the pillboxes with gun barrels still sticking at them. You'll, you'll, you'll drive across a bridge and there'll be a German machine gun pointed at you. And the French people have painted it so it won't rust and you notice it. And so that made it incredibly vivid. I did, in fact, speak with someone who was on the, the uh, third wave on Omaha Beach about 630 in the morning. And I will tell you, after that interview, I felt about one inch tall. It's like, there, there is a man, and he's in his 90s, and he said, hey, nothing fancy, nothing heroic, we just had a job to do. And I think, I think no, very fancy, very heroic, and what an amazing job you did. I probably read about 40 books for this, and I interviewed many other people. I went to a private collection museum and held every weapon that occurs in this book. Um, I also p- held the parachute fabric um, for the paratroopers that came into D-Day. I, I wrote a couple of sentences on an encryption uh, encoding device. I mean, I really went very deep on it because it would be an insult to the the heroism of that day, the courage and sacrifice of that day, if I got something wrong. You know, like I worked, when I worked in newspapers, you didn't want to have something wrong because you might get sued, you know, or you didn't want to be embarrassed in print and have to have a kind of correction in the next day. It's very different in a novel. It's much more emotional. It's more like, you know, imagine a veteran seeing this and seeing that I got something wrong. And so, in fact, you can go through the book and compare it with the actual history. And even though it's a novel, things really line up. You know, there's a time when some German soldiers are, are changing the road signs to make the wrong distances and directions. Um, and that was actually a thing that occurred. There's a time when some guys are digging a ditch to flood a field, and they did that because they thought that field was a place paratroopers might land. I, t- I took one liberty with uh, with the sequence of things and had the mass- massacre of Ordorsa Glen occur, uh, I think, s- 10 days before it actually occurred. But otherwise, everything stayed exactly as right to the minute as it occurred in, histor- in the historical record. Wow, that's amazing. I love that you mentioned that you held the parachute fabric because I was remembering, we were just talking about the yes. scene in the book where Emma is you know, pa- sort of passing out because um, she's been attacked and she's sort of delirious and she looks up and she sees what she thinks are jellyfish coming out of the sky 
but really it's the paratroopers. Yes. It's such an incredible moment. I love that you included that. So one of the things that I learned in the research is that a lot of the, the parachutes from that time became wedding dresses for the young ladies and because it was silk. In fact, the parachute that I touched had been turned into a, a wedding dress. So there's a moment in the novel when, when Emma's grandmother grabs the parachute and says, this will be your wedding dress. Linda posted on the Book Club Girl Facebook page and said she loves the cover of The Baker's Secret, and she asked what was the inspiration. So for any readers who haven't seen the cover, Stephen, could you describe it and then tell us a little bit about what it means? First of all, I'm just so happy that Linda said that because I'm not a visual guy. I'm a words guy. And so when I see a cover that's just like, oh, that is so great, I can't take any credit for it at all. It's Mustafa and the people in the art department at HarperCollins, but I, I really do love this cover. And what it is is a picture of a bicycle, an old the kind of green toned bicycle and um and strapped onto the rack on the back are a couple of baguettes and they're held down so tightly that the the loaves are actually bending which you, you can almost like feel the crust you know and um and then it's in front of a of a window of what looks like a very modest place with some lace uh, curtains and somehow it's really evocative and um and i've had the experience and this is total vanity i can't believe i'm admitting it but i've been in air i've been in airports and seen people walk up to like the display of books for sale and look at that cover and they pick that one up first whoa what a great what a great moment to witness no kidding and i get no credit like i said i'm i'm not the visual guy i'm the words guy but I love this cover. And so God bless Linda for that question, because I get to praise the art people who do stuff that I I just can't even conceptualize. There are some powerful scenes in this novel, like this one. Here they had died, and up the beach they were still dying, in flocks, and willingly for the idea that she, Emma herself, and her friends and family and neighbors ought to live in freedom. Who on earth deserved such a gift? She turned again to Monkey Boy, Tears stinging the cut on her chin, and she nodded. For us. For us. Yeah, for us. So that was Katie's favorite quote from the novel, and she asks, before writing The Baker's Secret, was there something in your experience that was a similarly powerful epiphany? I have never experienced anything on the scale of liberation that occurred at D-Day. I've never had anything near it, and I've had a very fortunate life in some ways. But I thought about what it would be like if you had lived in this isolated little town in grown up in 1920s and 30s, France, and suddenly there's the Nazi occupation and you have very little food and you have no rights and you have very little hope. And suddenly people come from a whole bunch of other countries and they lie themselves down. In there's one, a couple of sentences before that. I think Emma says that she saw more dead people on that beach than alive people she had seen in her whole life. Right. Right. And it's just like the magnitude of, you know, of, of sacrifice and of courage for an idea about what a human being is. And, um, you know, I, I, as you were reading it, I found myself choking up because I remember when I was writing it that I was really choking up. This idea, you know, lest I get political, can we just say that we are far from that kind of idea of common humanity and common purpose and willingness to sacrifice for a grand principle to stop an evil? We are a long way from that. And, and so there's a way that I just almost tried to understate it, that she would see it she would be blown away by it, and she would turn to Monkey Boy, and all she could say is, 
for us. It's almost like a question, like for us, they did this, you know, and, and, um, she didn't need to give a long speech. Right. And I think about, there is this myth that the French people are not appreciative. And I have to say, when I was doing my, my research, especially in Normandy, that that myth, it's completely untrue. I encountered gratitude everywhere I went. You know, I stood at the corner of, you know, Heroes Avenue and Invasion Street, looking at the, the rusting hulks off of Aramanche there in the water, uh, where the iron is still decaying from where they built a makeshift harbor. And you know that they, they, they appreciate what happened there. There are only two statues that I know of, of of human beings anywhere in the invasion zone, which is 55 miles long. One is a picture of the Scottish bagpiper who led his troops into battle off the ships, and the other one is Eisenhower. No French leaders. The gratitude is spectacular. It's very, very touching. I really felt her awe and wonder and, like, her humility in that moment. And, and I also felt like she was happy to be proven wrong. She had no hope they were going to come. And... Yeah, and there they are. One of the things that Tavia has, has said about the book that I really love um, in describing Emma's character is that she's like a pessimist or she's she's cynical about the likelihood of, of salvation or liberation. and But she, she every day, nonetheless, does these acts of optimism and idealism. Um, and I and I loved I loved her journey. I loved seeing her every day doing that, and then to building to this moment. I think was really powerful. And where it builds to the end of the book, and I guess for your for your listeners, I won't give it away. But you know where she arrives as this cynic who says they will never come, and all of you are hopeful. Hope cannot be traded for butter. And you know, um, and meanwhile, she's relentlessly doing good deeds. She really doesn't know how to do anything but that. Um, and where she arrives personally at the end of the book. Um, is is the whole journey for me, is the joy of it. Each episode, we ask an author, what is your literary white whale? It's a book they've either always meant to read or one they started reading and never finished. So, Stephen, what is your literary white whale? Well, you know, as always, I have a story I have to tell first, and it's a show-off story, forgive me, but I was traveling in Kenya with a group of people, and I brought along with me War and Peace. And there was one, and we would be on these long drives to get from place to place, and it would take hours, and it's at the equator, it's the summer, it's really hot, and everyone was miserable, and the roads are so bad, and bending this way and that, that people couldn't sleep. And I was just reading War and Peace. And one night at dinner, somebody said, how can you read that heavy philosophical thing when, you know, when all this is going on? And I said, this isn't heavy philosophy. This is a soap opera. And they said, like what? And I said, like Alexi wants to propose to Natasha, but Peter might do it. So he's waiting to see if Peter does it first. And then we get to the next place that the next night. And they said, what happened? And so over the course of two weeks of traveling with these people in the Masai Mara, each day I would read, and then that night after, by the fire after dinner, I would tell them the story that Tolstoy told. And it told me, it convinced me the power of white whales. So I, and I, it's such a fantastic book. And I came back and I started cranking through the white whales. And it was Anna Karenina. It was a whole bunch of Dickens. It was Gravity's Rainbow. It was the biography of Jackson Pollock. It was like these immense books. It was like, give me the pages, give me the pages. And then I hit the wall. And it's a book that Francine Prose had tried to make me read 30 years ago, and I tried and tried. It's now a book I've tried four times. It's two volumes long in the edition I have, and I can't even make it halfway through one volume. Even though I love nostalgia, and I love all things French, and I love French food, I cannot bear remembrance of things past. That is my white whale. I will never harpoon it. Oh, <laughs> 
You had me on the edge of my seat. I, I just can't. Like, I mean, everyone says Proust about? is a genius and it's so emotionally rich and I'm literally falling asleep after a half a page. I don't know what it is. I just, I give up on that one. That's a really good one. And I love that you've made it a project to try to read the, you know, these literary white whales over the years. That's a good, it's a good mindset to have. Has, have any of your authors said that one before yet? No. No. That was a, oh, that was a first. Well. We've had War and Peace before. That's been that's oh, been a big that's one. Such for a great people. book. Okay, I have to say, Gravity's Rainbow was a commitment, but I got there, and there was a there were rewards along the way, um, and uh, that was probably the toughest. But there was so much pizzazz in that that it wasn't hard to stay with. But Proust. Oh. Stephen, I have a I have a great question for you. Barbara posted on Facebook and asked, "What are you working on now?" So we thought this was a great opportunity for you to tell us about your new book. What new book? <laughs> Do we have three hours so I can talk about it? I have a novel coming on the fifth of May, Sanco de Mio, and it is uh, called Universe of Two, and it is a love story. It is completely a love story, and it is set amid in 1944 amid the development of the atomic bomb. A young mathematician who is inducted into the, the Manhattan Project to work on the bomb and his moral misgivings. And the woman he loves, who's not allowed to know what he's doing, but who pushes him to do more and to put, do it faster and to be a man. And after the bomb succeeds, they both feel culpable and some guilt. And they spend the rest of their lives seeking redemption together. And they find it. Well, Stephen, thank you so, so much. This was an awesome interview. I enjoyed The Baker's Secret so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thanks for this really enjoyable conversation, too. Thank you. That was Stephen P. Kiernan, whose book, The Baker's Secret, is out now. To find out more about Stephen's book and how to buy it, head to bookclubgirl.com slash podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in this episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and leave a review. Another way to help spread the word about the Book Club Girl podcast, tell a friend. It really helps others to find us. You'll hear from us again in two weeks where we'll be speaking with Meg Mitchell Moore about The Islanders. Yay! Seriously. Can't wait for that conversation. Such a fun book. So much fun and totally gets me in the mood for summer. But you can always stay in touch with us in between episodes. We're both on Instagram. Find us at Tavia Reads and at Eliza is Reading and of course at Book Club Girl. Before we go, a big thank you to Jordan Gosperay, who produced today's episode, Lane Gibson with Kombancha Studio for recording this interview, and our terrific engineer, Zach Grappone. We also want to thank the wonderful Jennifer Brell, who is Stephen P. Kiernan's editor, and his incredible publicist, Sharon Rosenblum, who helped set up this interview. Until next time, I'm Eliza. And I'm Tavia. Happy reading. See, Emma, then. In the dim hour of dawn on the 5th of June, years later. The yearning for Philippe felt so similar to the hunger of her belly each day. She did not know which want was which. Given time enough, perhaps one can grow accustomed to all pains. So she baked, to save her life and Meme's and all the others in the village who depended on her secret network of food and fuel. The skies threatened rain, the wind blew harshly, but the commandant's expectation of baguettes remained as certain as the tides. Emmanuel slid on quilted gloves, placed a bowl of water in the oven to harden the crust, and turned the loaves on their sides. They were brown and crisp. 
the V thinner but visible for anyone who looked. Removing her mitts, Emma began her next task, preparing the following day's straw. The oaken pestle spun quick in her hands, grinding against the marble mortar until the grass shafts became a soft powder the color of her hair. The idea had come from the animals and their departure. The occupying army requisitioned one species after another, cows, then pigs, then sheep, so that the demand for dry straw dwindled to nothing. The soldiers also confiscated all dogs over 45 centimeters in height, though for what purpose Emma shuddered to imagine. Nonetheless, with no animals needing bedding, straw sat in the lofts unused. One afternoon, Monkey Boy wandered by, whistling his familiar tune, but shy when he reached the barn door. Are you going to lurk there all day? Emma asked. Because I have nothing to feed you. Monkey Boy's shoulders dropped. He stumbled across the barnyard to the wall of beige bricks that separated Emma's farm from the eastern well, flopped down with less care than a dog takes to settle on the dirt, and fell instantly asleep. Observing through the open door, Emma rose and crossed the grassless barnyard. As she stood over Monkey Boy, for once considering him with something other than dismissal, it became clear that he had collapsed not from fatigue, but from hunger. He looked like a clothed pile of sticks. Emma considered the thousands of hours her hands had spent cooking under Uncle Ezra's critical eye, dicing onions or pinching salt, or adding the tiniest soupçon of dry mustard to sharpen a broth. Wasted luxury, pointless education. What good was finesse in the face of starvation? It would be like needle pointing while the barn burned. She needed to do something. Her training, and yes, she could admit it, her talents, demanded better use than frosting cakes or sugaring muffins. Emma turned from the emaciated boy and marched back into the barn, her hands in fists. Dough for the next morning's baguettes sat in metal bowls, three rounds taking their rise on the sunlit sill. She rested a palm on one as if on the brow of a sleeping baby. Outside, Monkey Boy whimpered in his sleep. At that moment, her gaze fell on the heap of straw sitting in the loft unused. So it began. One pinch ground fine and stirred into the twelve-loaf mix. Emma baked as usual the next morning. She slid the arms of warm bread into the green canvas bag the commandant's aide used when he came to fetch them. She wrung her hands as he motorcycled away with the bag over one shoulder, wondering if she had just sentenced herself to death. Emma barely slept that night. If she were found out, who would look after Maymay? She rose before dawn, as ever, and when the dough was ready for final mixing, she added that pinch once again. Later, when the aide motorcycled into the barnyard, he held the canvas bag toward her without a word. No praise, but more importantly, no complaint. Soon one pinch became two. Every few days, she added slightly more. 
until a morning several months along, when the aide asked in broken words if she had changed her recipe, because lately the crusts were tough. That was the ceiling, therefore. Five handfuls, beneath which she remained ever after. Now each day Emma scooped powdered straw into a mass of dough the size of three melons, adding salt to aid with concealment. She baked the commandant's twelve loaves, and portioned the extra two among Monkey Boy, or Madeleine, whose eyesight had gone bad, or Fleur, the veterinarian's beautiful daughter, or the newly married Argent couple, or Pierre, the cowman too affable to comprehend a time of war. I give them my milk and they leave me alone, Pierre confided in Emma one day. He removed his pipe from his mouth. I am not being disloyal to my country. I am protecting my girls. He blew a kiss to the trio of bovines grazing in his dooryard, with their long eyelashes and bashful ways. Emma handed him one-third of a loaf. I only want to keep as many people alive as possible. Yes, until the liberators come. Pierre tucked the bread in his coat pocket. They will never come. <laughs>